The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So Sophia and Landon, my kids, they received a lot of cool stuff for Christmas. Um, much of which, as a dad, much assembly is required, right? Is that some assembly required? It really means much assembly required. Um, I have a whole new appreciation for my dad and my mom now on Christmas Eve as I'm trying to fit things together. And as I've told you guys before, and you've probably figured out, I'm not exactly the most handy guy there is. And so sometimes it takes me a little bit longer than other people to make it all. That's a very ugly shirt you have on there, David. I'm sorry. I have to, I keep looking over there and I get distracted. But uh, I, I it, take, it, takes a lot, it takes a lot of energy and effort to try to get this thing going. And, and as the kids are getting older now, Sophia's seven and Landon is four, it takes, it, it takes more effort and more energy because all the toys and stuff they're getting are more and more intricate. There's more and more stuff that goes on. There's a lot more moving parts, electronic components. Uh, Landon, I was very excited about this. He was into Transformers this year, and I'm very excited because I was into Transformers when I was a kid. So I, I was like, hey, just buy him all the Transformers, but they changed the Transformers. I don't know if you guys have caught on to this. They changed the Transformers, and uh, we got this one pack that was like Optimus Prime, guys, you're on board with me, girls. Just play along for, for a minute. But as we go down Nostalgia Road here, it was two Optimus Primes. One was like old school, like 80s Optimus Prime, where it's like, I was like, this is really cool. And then one that was like new school Optimus Prime, where he looks like real angry all the time. And, and this Optimus Prime, the whole 80s retro Optimus Prime, I was able to transform him back and forth pretty easily. The other one came with an instruction sheet, and I could not figure it out. Uh, Miranda was at our house in the, that morning, and she spent, like, probably, I'm not exaggerating, probably an hour trying to transform him from robot to truck. And when she got him to truck, she said, you know, we should probably just leave him in truck. I don't know if he was ever going to get back into a robot ever again. It takes a lot more energy and effort. There's a lot more moving parts and things that are going on. And, and sometimes when the kids would open, like when you go through the, the, the like, you know, the jaws of, of life to open up these, these packages and you finally get them out and the kids like we just want to grab them because I've been waiting for 30 minutes while I undo all the, the ties and unlock the padlocks that are in there and the combination locks and you know call the White House and get the, the security code that's going to get the toy out of the box and when we finally get it out they've just been waiting they want to take it and run with it and play with it and if they if they haven't read the instructions, they haven't sat down and listened to me about how you operate this thing, they are going to get frustrated. Because if I don't follow the instructions on how it gets put together, I'm going to get frustrated late Christmas Eve night. And sometimes we act the same way when it comes to sex, relationships, and marriage. Landon grabs that toy and he thinks he knows how it works. And then he runs off to the side and starts to play with it, gets frustrated with it, throws it against the wall and just leaves it there and goes away. And sometimes that's, if we'll be honest with it, our sort of love life kind of looks like that. Our sexual identity, our relationships, 
Our singleness, our married relationships kind of look like that toy that Landon grabbed out of the box as he couldn't wait to play with it. Then it doesn't quite work the way he thinks it should work because he hasn't read the instructions and then we discard it and we move on. And that's sort of the way it is for us. We often think that it just comes naturally. Single people do X and then they get married and married people do X and married life is like this and that's just the way it happens and we just sort of accept those ideas without giving real, any real thought to it. It makes it even more of a challenge when we know that the Christian ethic runs counter to a lot of what we see around us when it comes to sex, relationships, and marriage, right? Christians appear out of date, we appear behind the times. Uh, I'm sure many of us have let, been left to wonder, like, I wonder really, if it really has just like kind of this whole idea of like don't have sex outside of marriage and be married to one person the rest of your life. Maybe that is just kind of outdated and outmoded and just like some other things that we've outgrown. Maybe we just outgrow that as well. When Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, he was writing to a church who kind of like ours was... Uh, minority in the greater culture around it when it came to sex and relationships. The Roman Empire, because sometimes we think about like it's just like an old school to, to be like don't have sex outside of marriage and stay, you know, faithful to the person that you're married to, but it's actually not old school. Uh, in the Roman Empire, this is ancient times, this is just on the other side of AD, early first century, uh, uh, early in the first century, the Roman Empire, like, it was not, it was like full of infidelity, full infidelity, full of promiscuity. The church was in the vast minority when it came to attitudes and actions regarding sex, marriage, and relationships around it. They were out of step. They were backward. Yet, yet, it's kind of interesting. Christianity spread like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire. By 100 AD, by AD 100, there were churches in 40 major cities across the Roman Empire. That's incredible. If you think about the way that news had to travel, the way that people had to travel, and the way that people got around, Christianity had spread to 40 major cities in 100 years. By the year 313, it was the official religion of the Roman Empire. And that happened from a religion that was considered a sect of Judaism from not a very important, not a very desirable area of the Roman Empire in Palestine. And it was started by a group of peasants, poor people, and the first adherents were a lot of peasants and slaves. And yet in 100 years, 40 major cities had churches in them and by 313 B.C., it had spread across the entire Roman Empire to the point that it was the official religion of the Roman Empire. What happened? Well, sociologists think that a couple of things happened. Of course, one is just the power of the gospel as it, people heard it and they believed. But one of the things that made it appealing as it, and st- made it stand out to the people in the Roman Empire was they say two things. One was the lavish generosity of, of Christians. See, Christians, Christianity wasn't a backward religion in the rural areas of the Roman Empire. It spread to major cities. And what happens when you get a bunch of people in the ancient times in a large city, you have plagues that break out all the time. And Christians lived sacrificial lives for their neighbors. 
there's stories, I like to say it a lot, you probably have heard it if you've been around, but there are all kinds of stories about Christians in a city, the plague hits, and people would, because when a plague hits a city, you gotta, you gotta like protect yourself and your family, you gotta get out of there. And if somebody came into your house, a family member, a dad, a mom, a child, and they had the plague, you would have to just like leave them alone. And so they would actually throw them out into the street or leave them in the house alone in order to die so they can save the rest of the family. And what Christians did is Christians went out on the streets and claimed these sick people and brought them in. They went house to house and found them in the house where they were suffering and cared for them and loved them there, even though they knew there was a good chance that they were going to get the same disease they had and died. Christians lived lavishly generous lives. And the second thing that stood out is Christians lived in loving fidelity to their spouse. There was a a letter to the Roman emperor whenever he asked if there to be a study done about Christianity. He said, what is going on? Why is it spreading? And the person who he had commissioned the the study to wrote back to him, he said, the Christians share everything except the marriage bed. Those two things made them stand out in the society around them. They lived lavishly generous lives, and they were lovingly committed to their spouse. And if they were Christian, they didn't have sex. If they were single, they didn't have sex outside of marriage. Think of how it would make our community stand out, our community of faith and the larger community. If you had a group of people who were committed to lavish generosity and loving fidelity, to their spouse. You know what that means? That means that our thoughts about sex, our thoughts about singleness, our thoughts about marriage and relationships go way beyond just my own life. It means that what I think about sex, singleness, marriage, and relationships are directly connected to the mission of God in the world. That's why we have to stop and think this month about what do we think about sex singleness, and marriage. For the first time in history, we think probably of all of history, in America, there are now more single adults than married adults. About 50.2% or 124.6 million American adults, 16 or older, are now single. In 1950, that number was about 22%. So there's been a vast sociological change in America. There's a vast sociological change in the church. Before, if you came to church, like I've heard it a lot, like you, you, you talk to the church, you just assume everybody in the room are married. You assume everybody in the room are a part of a, a family unit. But now the percentage of adult Americans who have never married, who have never married, have risen to 30.4% from 22% in 1976 while the proportion that are divorced, separated, or widowed increased to 19.8% from 15.3%. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25. Uh, Becker read a, a passage that is, a good, that is the background to the section that we're going to be re- going through today. Verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. That's, that's, a, that's a, the wording there, betrothed, is a person who would be who would be a virgin, but yet engaged to be married. 
I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. We'll come back to that, what he's saying there. Because um, well, it, it seems to say like what Paul is getting ready to say doesn't have any, doesn't have any real weight like the rest of Scripture. But that's not what it means here. He's saying that uh, the, the advice that he's going to give them is not, uh, not something they have to follow. It's just wisdom. I think that in the view of this, the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be. I'm sorry. Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? That means are you single? Do not seek to be. Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. That's a confusing passage. We'll come back to that. Don't worry. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion. To the Lord. A few more verses. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries, his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do well even better. That's a very confusing passage. It's caused a lot of confusion for singles, a lot of confusion for marrieds, and a lot of confusion for there's really no in-between, but anybody else in between. It's been misused, misunderstood, caused consternation, called late, caused late-night conversations, prayer meetings, concern questions. What's it talking about? Well, first of all, if we have to rethink about our, our line of thought about what it means to be, uh, how we regard our sexuality, how we regard marriage and relationships and together. Paul is writing to a church that is in the middle, as I said, of a, of a culture that stands in direct opposition to what he's writing about. He's in a, standing in a, a culture that has particular thoughts and assumptions about what it means to be married, about what it means to be single, about how you do life, right? I mean, it seems kind of backward to tell people like, hey, this is what you don't have sex outside of marriage and you got to wait for this person. I mean, it's difficult to be single, right? I mean, you marry, you stick along with me, but it's difficult to be single. Anybody, anybody ever remember, anybody in the position now, it is difficult to be single. There are more singles in America today than there ever have been. And yet, have, that just means like, you have a lot more people who are trying to hook up, they're trying to find the right person, right? I, I heard a, a, 
uh, a report on the radio this week about how the, the couple weeks after Christmas are not only a big time for diets and gyms and Weight Watchers and everything else, but it's also a big time for dating sites and apps. Like last Sunday, the 4th of January, is sort of, uh, they have some sort of name for it, but it's the peak day for dating sites. Match.com got more hits on last Sunday than they ever have in their history as a site. And they said it's just cited by like, it's people have, it's before kind of things ramp up in the new year and you're coming off the holiday break, people have a little bit of time, they're like, all right, I got to find somebody, I got to get on this, I'm tired of having Christmas alone. We, we are desperately searching for somebody, and yet we tend to be getting married even later. They're talking about this trend, this, that there are more singles for the first time in history. And one sociologist said that the, the numbers seem to point that one reason that people are waiting longer to get married is that you have more choices now. Before, if you lived in Myrtle Beach and you're single, your choices are we're solely and maybe sadly restricted to the, the single pool in the city of Myrtle Beach in the greater region around here, right? Your, your, your pool was limited to your friends and who they could hook you up with or who you can meet at school or church or the gym or if you're that kind of pervert that's standing around in the produce department at the grocery store trying to meet somebody. But, but now today you have a lot more opportunities to meet somebody, like, the whole world is out there for you, right? I mean, people put their profile online for you just to look at them like a cattle call. You can pull up Tinder on your phone and swipe left or right and just say, nope, yep, nope, yep, nope, yep, just back and forth all the time. They're like, the whole world is open for you. And they're saying, like, it's sort of a paralysis of choice. Like, the whole world is out there. I got to make sure I don't mess this thing up. I got to find just the right person. And also you have a bunch of people who are products of divorce and whose parents are products of divorce and we're sort of jaded by the whole thing. So most, a lot of single people would rather not be married than to get married and have it fail and fall apart at the end. In the middle of that, how do we think about our singleness? How do we think about what God has called me to, to view my singleness? Because Paul seemed to be saying like, hey, uh, it's better not to be married. And yet, like the whole book starts out, he puts Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, go at it, be fruitful and multiply. In Ephesians, he says, hey, it's a great thing to be married. Later, other places, he says, it's a great thing to be married. And here he says, it seems to be saying, he's saying, hey, it's better not to be married. And you start to get confused. And so I know... I, I know singles who sort of like live on this sort of roller coaster of like, I really want somebody. I really want to find the person God has for me. And then like to the other extreme of like, well, I'm just dating Jesus. Anybody ever heard that before? Or anybody ever had, if you're single, you had somebody tell you, you just need to date Jesus. That is some, that is some silly, stupid advice. How in the world do you do that? And how do you, how do you say it and have a straight face? Like, how do you date Jesus? It's really, I, mean, I have probably said it, if you have said it, no offense, but how do you do it? And so you have this sort of like roller coaster that you're on where you feel like I shouldn't be, I shouldn't feel like I have to be in a relationship and then you go to bed at night and you're so stinking lonely or you're, you know, have the appetites and desires that come that help, are very helpful to have another person in bed with you. I'm trying not to get in trouble today again, Dale. 
Like, you have all these like desires and appetites, courses within you. Like you, you're lonely, you want somebody. And yet it's also the Bible says, it says, don't be afraid to be alone. It's better for you not to be married. And you're like, I don't know how to do this. And sort of like this sort of like this roller coaster ride up and down, back and forth. And how do I, how do I govern my singleness? How do I approach it? Should I date? Should I not date? Should I be looking for somebody? Should I be waiting for them to come to me? One person says you should just be like running towards Jesus and somebody will run up beside you and you, they join you on your journey and the, somebody else says, hey, if you're, you know, you don't want to get married, go out and find somebody. Don't just sit around, like do it. Like go out and find somebody and get married and have babies. And how do I govern this together? How do I work it all together? And at the same time, uh, these appetites and drives and desires as a person, as a sexual being that are longing for somebody else. And I have people around me, a culture at large, which just says like, it's just an appetite and desire. As Rebecca, as Rebecca read, like it's just a, it's just a drive. Like I have a, the Greeks had a had a saying we think it, that, that Paul was quoting. He says, the, uh, you have the stomach for the food and food for the stomach. It's just an appetite. The same thing like you have sexual organs for this sexual act, and so you just do it whenever you feel like it. So how do we govern ourselves in that if you're single? And what's Paul saying in this section? The first thing that Paul is saying in verse 26 and verse 27 when he says, I think that in the view of this present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. For the first thing he's saying here, and this was a revolutionary idea at the time, was that singleness is a whole state. Singleness is a state of wholeness. So in the ancient world, for you to have sort of any sort of identity and standing in the community, you had to be married and you had to have children. And so there was no sort of idea of like, like we have a sort of idea in American society that an individual can work hard and rise. Families rose and families went down. Anybody ever watch some historical dramas? You noticed that? Like a family would rise to prominence and then somebody messes up and the whole family goes down to the very bottom of the pecking order. A whole family might be raised up and all of a sudden made powerful or the whole family may be sold into slavery or, sold, or killed. For a woman to be married was security for her and for a man to be married, so not only so he could just have sex, but so that they could have kids and he could pass on his name and not just pass on his name, but so that he could have more, more hands to the till. If you have a farm or if you're trying to build some sort of an empire, you got to have more hands, to the, more hands on the oars. And so you, the way to do it is you have babies. You could trust them. So you have a lot of babies, then you got a lot of hands. you got a lot of power. Families rose and the families fell together. And Paul brings a revolutionary idea that we don't have any sort of record of any sort of idea like this before he writes this letter to the church of Corinth where he is saying you, it's okay to be single. Because your value and identity isn't based upon who you're married. Whether you're married into an important family, or you have a, your dad was somebody who was important, or your mom was somebody who was rich and powerful, because your son has risen to prominence. None of those things are what give you identity and security. 
singleness can be a whole state because your identity and value, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. That Jesus saw you when you were reckless and running away from him and he went out and he ran after you. When you were running as hard from him as you could possibly could, he ran after you, he grabbed you and he pulled you to himself. He saw you, he wanted you and he won you for himself. That's your value as a person. It's not based upon the family that you're a part of or the person that you're married to, whether you're single or married. Singleness can be a whole state because your value and your identity is based upon God's gracious and undeserving love for you and the sacrifice that he made by his son on the cross for you. And that was a revolutionary idea to the Corinthians. So yeah, at the time that he's writing to them, there was no concept of being single and being an adult. You were either married or you were a prostitute. There was really was no other category. You had to be married to be a part of society. And Paul said, it's okay to be single. You're not a second-class citizen, whatever state that you're in. And this was a revolutionary idea, not just to singles, but also to the people who were slaves at the time, people who were, were peasants at the time. The gospel came to them and gave them value and identity that wasn't based upon their lot in life. It was based upon, can you imagine how freeing that would be? If you're a slave at the time and you have no promise for any future, that other than what you are, if you're a peasant at the time, you're a, a poor person and, and your family has always been poor, yeah, there's no opportunity for your advancement. There's no, there's no Bill Gates in their society. And yet, the gospel came to them and said, you have value and identity basis outside of your family and outside of your station in life. There's some people here who you would like to be married it is a good desire. It is a holy desire. It was programmed within us in the very core of who we are. Adam and Eve in the very beginning, he said, Adam, it is not good. Even though Adam had a job, he was walking with Jesus. He said, it's not good for you to dwell alone, for you to dwell alone. He made a beautiful woman. He put them together in the garden. He said, go have sex and make babies be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. It's a good and a holy desire that you have. But sometimes we don't have control over it. There are circumstances we were married and now we aren't and we don't have control over it. We just greatly desire to be married and yet we just haven't been able to find a fit for us. And it's out of our control, out of our circle, out of our sphere of influence. We're doing all that we can. There's nothing else we can do the message comes to you, singleness is a whole state. It's a state of wholeness. And then not only did he say that, but in verse 32 and then verse 36 through 38, he says singleness can be a happy state. I want you to be free from anxieties. <laughs> the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. So I'm going I'm to, to paraphrase what he's saying here. What he's saying is, I don't want you to 
I don't want you to have anxieties. I don't want you to be, your life to be any more complicated than it has to be. And he says, husbands, your life is more complicated than if you were single. And wives, your life is more complicated than if you were single. Nobody amen very loudly to that. Anybody know? Like the smallest things are a lot more complicated when you're married than when you're single. There are a number of couples in this room right now uh, well, not today, because well, some of you will be uh, having lunch uh, with us together, but maybe you're going to leave here, and you're going to argue over where you're going to go to lunch. And it happens every single week. It happens every single time you go out. What do you want? I don't know. What do you want? Uh, oh, uh, how, about, uh, how about Mexican? No, I don't feel like Mexican. Well, you said whatever I want, and then it just goes on from there. And before you get to the restaurant, you've had a knockdown drag-out fight in the car. You're sitting in the parking lot arguing, like not trying to look like you're arguing to the people that are going in and out of the restaurant. You ever, do, you ever done that? Like you're trying to smiling, and you're trying to move your mouth not as big as you want to be yelling inside the car so the people walking past won't be startled. Being married, there's a lot more loose ends that need to be tied up. There's a lot more work we got to work through because you have, and here's a little cheat ahead to the marriage section, because we always marry the wrong person. There's no one right person for you that whenever you meet, like the, the fables and the fairy tales and the movies paint a picture, like you meet the one true love for you and you live happily ever after because you're just such a perfect fit. There exists no perfect fit for you on the earth. Even the most perfect fit for you will engender arguments and confusion and anger and a life that will be continually butting up against each other like, like those two rocks that I was talking about last week in the tumbler. There's no perfect match for you. So he just says married singleness can be a happy state. Just number one, because you're not dealing at, whenever you leave here, you can go wherever in the world you want to eat. Yesterday, some of the guys from Doxa played basketball. They invited me, and I told them I thought they had sent the text to the wrong person because uh, it's not really my deal. But they went and played basketball, and the, the single guys, what they do? They just woke up, grabbed their stuff, went to play basketball. The married guys, there's the whole dance you got to go through, right? Like, I'll scratch your back, you'll scratch mine. Like, the negotiation aspect that has to come in. And like, hey, what are you doing for me? What do I do for you? How, if, if you go basketball, what do I get to do? And there's the whole thing back and forth. It's just a very simple state. Life is a little bit simpler for the single person. Verse 36 and 38, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, but let, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed as well, and he who refrains from marriage, will do even better. Because singleness is a state of wholeness based upon the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, singleness can be a happy state. Even if you're longing with all your heart to be married, and again, that's a holy desire, it can still be filled with happiness because of Jesus Christ. And you can have the opportunity to serve him. 
Your life isn't on pause until you get married. Your life isn't half a life until you get married. Even though two come together and they become one, you're not a half, you're a whole. Marriage can be a happy state, it's a whole state. Then verse 32 to 34, it says that singleness, sorry, it said marriage, singleness is a holy state. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the worldly things, how to please her husband. What Paul is saying is, not only are you a whole person if you're single, not only can you be happy because it's based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, but you can use, you can leverage your life as a single person to serve him in ways that is more difficult if you're married and have kids. When Megan and I decided that we were called to be church planters and we taught to people, went through the whole process, and we came to the point where like, we had to be, like we were ready to do this, then the next step for us is to figure out what does that look like for us. We, taught, we thought about moving and doing all kinds of things, but you know, we were married, we had a kid, I had a business. Like, all that played into our decisions. Like, we, weren't, we couldn't just up and leave and go somewhere. We could but it was going to take a lot of effort and energy. We just had to figure out were we called to do it here or somewhere else. And it, it has made it a lot more complicated. If you're single, it makes things a lot simpler when it comes to serving the Lord. And here's my encouragement to you. And I don't mean this trite. If you're sitting there, you're single and you're listening to this married dude who was single for about 15 minutes telling you about singleness. It's easy to be very irritated with him whenever he says this. But I want you to hear this. If you're single... Leverage your singleness for the sake of the kingdom. Pour yourself into community. Pour yourself into mission. Do the things like your friends around you, your married friends are like, hey, travel. Do all the stuff that you can do because when you get married and you have kids, like you can't do it anymore. I encourage you like do that, but not just to travel. Do it to leverage your life for the sake of the kingdom. Things that you cannot do when you get married and have kids, you can do when you're single for the kingdom of God. Do it. Put all your chips on the table. Don't pause your life until you get married. Because when you get married, then you're going to pause your life until you have kids, and then you're going to pause your life until they get out of the house. And we're always pausing our life because we think like the next bend, next bend is going to bring like happiness and fulfillment. And that's because we're looking for happiness and fulfillment outside of Jesus Christ. And I encourage you, find it deeply in him and then put it all on the table for him. Expend it all for his glory and his name and his fame and his renown across the Grand Strand area and across the world. And that same encouragement can go to us as married people. It may be more complicated, but leverage all that you can for the sake of the kingdom. Don't pause your life until the next bend comes because you'll continually pause it you'll never get there. Live your life today for his glory and his fame and his renown. See, when this is a, a whole state, it's a happy state, it's a holy state. Then last of all, singleness is not a permanent state. Singleness is not a permanent state. 
Let's look at those confusing verses, verse 29 through 31. But if you do marry, I'm sorry, the 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Some of you guys are saying amen. That's not what he's talking about. And, let, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as, those, as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. For the present form of this world is passing away. Here's what he's saying. Here's why he's saying. Um, he's saying, let me just give you a story. So, so Megan and I went to, to Denver uh, one time years ago, and uh, she has family out there. And there was a, a Monday night football game. And she's awesome, uh, awesome wife. And one of the reasons that she is is that she loves to go to sporting events when we're in other cities. And they were playing the Oakland Raiders. So if you know anything about this, like the Raiders hate the Broncos and the Broncos hate the Raiders. And it was Monday Night Football, so it's a primetime game. It's like, oh, man, this is awesome. So we paid some money, get up there, and, and we get in Denver, and we're walking around town during the day downtown, and we see, like, like the, the crazy Raider fans walking around with, like, spikes and all kinds of makeup and all kinds of weird, enough, weird stuff on. We see the Denver fans walking around, seemingly, like, like real intelligent people walking around town, and... And we got kind of caught up in it. Like we get to the, we get to the stadium and it's like it's exciting and the stuff is going on. And somehow we got caught up in the excitement so much that we went down to the, the gift shop at the stadium and bought T-shirts for the Denver Broncos that we wore to the, then put on and wore at the game, which is crazy because neither of us liked the Denver Broncos. <laughs> I'm a Panther fan. And she, by, you know, there's some vessels for dishonor. She's a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. And... And so we go in there and we, we get caught up in the moment because there's like a bunch of people, they're all excited. We buy, we buy, for some reason, I still have it in my drawer, a Denver Broncos t-shirt. We go up in the, in the stands and man, this stands are getting crazy. It's like a college game. Like there are like chants and cheers going on back and forth. There are, I mean, this is no exaggeration. There are literally fights breaking out. You can see them breaking out in the stands, usually by Oakland fans. But they're all around going on in the stands. And we're looking around, there's like, there's securities coming through, leading people out, like the game starts going and the crowd is all fired up. And if you've ever been in Denver or heard it on TV, like every, every time like they get a first down, the whole stadium yells first down. And then every single, every single time the opposing quarterback throws an incomplete pass, the whole stadium in unison yells, incomplete. It's like, it was exciting, man. We were all into it. The, the Broncos won. We were all excited. But here's the thing, like if the Broncos hadn't won, It'd be no big deal for us. We had literally no skin in the game. We were just there to see a football game because we happened to be in town, even though we had the T-shirt on and everything. And that's kind of what life is like for the believer. This world that we see around us, this culture that we see around us, that's so real to us, that seems so immediate, so pressing, this thing is not final. We don't have skin in this game. Jesus is coming back again to redeem and renew everything. And all that is broken in this, it's, the world is wonderful. Like, look, marriage is awesome. Sex is wonderful. Like, life is awesome. Like, having kids is great. All this stuff is great. But it's not final. 
is broken inherently. And he is coming back again to renew and remake and redeem everything finally. And that's our permanent state as believers. We're like at a great football game that we don't, we don't have any skin in the actual game. And so what he's saying to us as believers is if you're single, it's not going to last forever. This age, this world that we're living in is passing away. And he's coming again. And if you're married, it's not going to last forever. And when you're looking for a mate, you don't have to find the mate that's going to be your soulmate that answers all your deepest longings and desires because that person doesn't exist except in the person of Jesus Christ. And so marriage is made to be a picture of our union with the Father and sex is made to be a picture of, our, of the ecstasy that it means to be in union with the Father. Like as wonderful and great as sex is, and it is wonderful and great. As wonderful and great as it is, it's just a foretaste of the ecstasy that's going to, that's going to exist in life when Jesus Christ returns. We see him face to face, and he redeems and remakes all of creation and makes it all right again. So if you're single, it's not a permanent state. Your life is not over. You're probably going to get married. You're probably going to find a mate. But if you shouldn't, life is not over because he's coming again, the bridegroom. And he's going to make all things new and make all things right. So as the band comes up to play, Let's to think about this this morning. If you're here this morning and you're single or married and uh, maybe you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, maybe you never confessed him as Lord, you've never repented of your sins and come to him, I want you to think about what am I looking for in relationships and in marriage that I'm not finding? Why is it I'm running from relationship to relationship or marriage to marriage or I'm very dissatisfied with my marriage partner? Because Is it perhaps because you are looking for a savior? You're looking for happiness. You're looking for heaven within a relationship and that does not exist. It's made to be a picture, a foretaste of that, but it is not the final thing. And maybe this morning is the morning for you to wake up to that and repent of their sin confess him as Lord and experience what your soul has been longing for but can never find in all those broken relationships. If you're this morning and you're a believer and you're either married or single, most of the stop and take a moment while the band is playing the song for us to think about how have I brought the, my own thinking, the way I think out the, the toys should work, the way, the way I think this thing should work, or just ex- accept what culture says about sex and relationships and marriage and singleness. And I've been running with that and living life like that. And it's caused a mess in my life and the lives of people around me because we're chasing the bunny that we can just never, ever catch. And let's repent of that this morning. And let's get excited for the fact that sex and marriage and relationships are all made to point to the one for whom our hearts were made for.
the band's going to play, and then I'm going to come back up afterwards, Dale and I, and we're going to offer the, the bread and the cup after Jamin prays. Now, I was to drink deeply this morning during the song and by taking the bread and dipping in the cup and taking, if you're a believer this, in Christ this morning, I want you to feast deeply of the one who satisfies your every longing and desire that no other person possibly can. Because it's only in finding that that you can then be the husband or the wife, the boyfriend or girlfriend, the single person that God's called you to be. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.